Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. been in a smirking conversation. That was the term that kept coming to mind as I was reading our passage for today. This, the way you're asked, it's formulated as a question, but it's really a trap set for the person on the receiving end, or a statement much more than a question, and you know that when you hear it. They don't care about my answer. They're just trying to say something. As parents, we do that sometimes. I hear myself say, where do we put our backpacks when we get back from school? Knowing good and well that I want the backpack hung up by the front door, what I'm really saying is, go put your backpack away. When I was in seminary in my early 20s, I had dreadlocks for three years, and I got a lot of those smirking questions about my hair decisions, and understandably so. It was, it was a bold choice, but I had a lot of interesting conversations about that. We've all probably been at the receiving end of a smirking conversation when it comes to politics or religion. That happens a lot, doesn't it? People are much more quick to want to say what they believe or how they feel than to really listen. And we know that this is what is going on in our passage today because in verse 15, it says they wanted to find a way to entangle Jesus. And so I asked, um, I have a lot of fun with the Bing chatbot. It did not write my sermon today. Maybe it would have been better if it had. But I did ask it to create an image of important religious figures gossiping. And this is what it gave me. I thought it was pretty good. So imagine these guys are getting together, they're whispering, and they're planning. We have the Pharisees and the Herodians, and that's who Jesus is talking to today. There are multitudes around, but it's the Pharisees and the Herodians that Jesus is talking to. The Pharisees opposed the Roman Empire. The Herodians actively worked with it. But their shared disdain for Jesus is what brings them together today. There's some parenting advice that also goes along with that that I've heard, and since my kids aren't in here, I will, I will spill the beans on that. And it's when your kids are arguing, sometimes if you can create a common enemy of yourself, have them do some chores or send everybody to their rooms, then they'll forget they're mad at each other. They'll join forces and be angry at you. So that's kind of what's going on with Jesus and the Pharisees and Herodians today. But they don't just begin with their pointed questions. They begin by flattering Jesus. One commentator I read said that they paid Jesus buttery compliments. They said, we know that you're sincere. We know you teach the way of God. We know you teach the truth. And you don't show partiality to anyone. So they're putting words in his mouth. But we also know that they have just challenged his authority in chapter 21. We also know that from the passage last week that Pastor Dane preached on, the the parable of the marriage feast, um, in which the ones who were initially invited by the king chose not to come, didn't care about the feast. This was a parable that Jesus very clearly was telling about the Pharisees and their rejection of Christ and the kingdom of God. Before that, it's even more um, blatant that Jesus is critiquing these people when he drives the the, uh, collectors out of the temple with a whip. And he turns over the tables, and he says that tax collectors and harlots are getting into heaven ahead of chief priests and elders. So I'm telling you all of this to say, there is tension in the air. This all happened during Holy Week. Holy Week is the week before the Easter, the week before the crucifixion. Jesus has ridden in on a donkey yesterday, so this is the Monday of Holy Week. And um, Jesus and his disciples, his entourage, the crowds following him have been considered to be occupying Jerusalem for about two days now. And they've already tried to lure Jesus into blasphemy, and that didn't work. So now they're back for a second try, and they've brought the Herodians. 
So they have set him up. I imagine they're smirking. They want to trap Jesus into the same boxes in which they have placed themselves. So they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I wonder what Jesus is feeling in this moment. Does he feel stressed at all? Perhaps he has a bit of a smirk on his face because he already knows how he's going to answer. He already knows that they've kind of set a trap for themselves. Jesus senses their hypocrisy and he doesn't answer right away. Instead, he asks them to show him a coin used for the temple tax, a silver denarius. So he's kind of accomplishing three things just with this one question. He shifted the spotlight from him to these people who've made themselves his adversaries. He's getting them to produce a coin inside a temple where he's just turned over the tables for money changing. And he's showing that he doesn't have any money. He's raising a question here that's going to serve as a pivot point for his reply. So he takes this coin, which is honoring the Roman emperor as a god, and he gives the Pharisees and the Herodians and whoever else might be listening a both and answer. Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and give to God the things that are God's. This is very typical of Jesus to respond to a challenge with an even greater challenge, to insist that the relationship between their faith and their civic duty, even their politics, is too complex to reduce to a pat answer or a tweet or a Facebook post, we can say today. Just like us today, the Jews of Jesus' day had a lot of taxes. In Matthew 17, we know they had a temple tax. They paid custom taxes, taxes on their land. Here in Matthew 22, it's a controversy about yet another tax, a tribute tax to be paid to Rome. Why should poor peasants in Israel send their hard-earned money all the way back to Rome? That's what a lot of them are already asking. Those who we might call realists, they collaborated, they cooperated with Rome, they paid their tax. Maybe it was out of conscience they felt the money was going to help support um, good, good things. Maybe it was fear because they knew they would be punished harshly if they didn't. On the other hand, we had idealists who didn't take kindly to the occupation of their land. The idealists who knew that they were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. The Jews at that time were being oppressed by the Roman Empire, and they didn't want to pay money to contribute to that. It really is a difficult situation. The Pharisees who despised Rome and the Herodians were opposing sex. But no, and no one would have expected them to join together, but perhaps they had been debating whose side Jesus was on. Maybe they even had a little wager going. Whose side is Jesus going to pick? He may not play favorites, but he's going to have to say a yes or a no, right? They thought they had it figured out. If he agreed that the Jews should pay taxes to Caesar, it sounded like he was bowing to an oppressive regime. He would have lost half of his followers. To answer and encourage tax evasion, tax evasion would have been sedition and would have jeopardized his ministry. It would have endangered anyone who followed him, and it would have sped up the time of his crucifixion, and his time hadn't come yet. In fact, telling people not to pay their taxes was one of the false charges that led to Jesus' execution. Luke 23, 2, they say, This man opposes paying taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. Well, the second part is true, but the first part we have right here in Matthew 22, he was not... He was not doing that. So the trick question of the Pharisees and Herodians elicited a trick answer from Jesus. He asked them for a coin that was used to pay the state tax and then asked whose image it bore. So here in this picture we have Tiberius, 
He's the little guy on his ankle. Perhaps I'm showing partiality by choosing a picture that makes him a little baby at the ankle of his dad. It's not the most. It doesn't make him look the most powerful. But most likely, the coin that he, Jesus was holding had the image of the emperor Tiberius, who was ruling Rome at that time. One side would have said, son of the divine Augustus, and the other side would have said, chief priest of the Roman polytheism. So some would have felt that by paying that tax to Rome, they were worshiping other gods. It's a really good question that they asked, actually. Very timely for them. Something that many were likely truly wrestling with. For many Jews who confessed a radical monotheism, this was a graven image. It was religiously offensive and politically humiliating. Certainly some would have felt that way. But this will come as a shock, maybe. Not really. This isn't really a conversation about taxes for Jesus. Matthew tells us that from the start. They were plotting to entrap him. We aren't really discussing the ethics of economic policy, at least in this passage. Jesus did talk about economics. But they're confident that this question will trouble and alienate Jesus because he won't find a way to answer. They expect Jesus to give an all-or-nothing position. If the trapping goes as planned, he'll be barbecued further by his opponents, and his authority will be questioned. Some might think Jesus is too radical. Some might think Jesus is a Roman sympathizer. However he answers, he'll be burning bridges, is their prediction. But rather than making an inflammatory political statement by denouncing Rome, Jesus just completely evades their trap, which we who have the benefit of having read the whole story, we could have predicted. He just answers with a dismissive shrug. If the coin belongs to Caesar, let him have it. So what? It's just money. But it's the second half of the answer that gets us. What do we owe to God? A simple tax or far more than money? Our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. And write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, we're not saying that you need to get scripture tattooed on your forehead. But what we're seeing here, and we heard Jesus repeat this again in the Gospels, is give God everything. So the Roman coins of Jesus' day had the image of the emperor. But from the very beginning of, G of Genesis, we know that as human beings created by God, we bear God's image, all of us. All of creation bears God's image. That's why we have this picture of the world. God's likeness is stamped into us and on us. God's signature is written across our very beings, which means that we owe God everything, our whole and entire selves. Any fantasies we might have of dividing our lives into what is secular and what is sacred is really just a fantasy. We cannot separate the earthly realm from God's realm when everything belongs to God. As Christians, we don't have an option to fudge on the love and mercy of God for any kind of other end result. We can't isolate our choices as citizens in our town or our state or our nation and the world as if they don't reflect who we are as image bearers of our creator. If everything belongs to God, then our spiritual and physical lives must cohere. An imperial tax could be paid without the payment being a vote of support for Rome or its methods. 
paying taxes acknowledged Rome's political power, but not necessarily its moral authority to rule. This is why Jesus said, sure, go ahead and pay that tax. The moral authority all belongs to God anyway. In effect, Jesus is saying, give the emperor his due, and by the same token, do the same for God. Give the emperor the things that bear his image, and give God everything. Our whole lives should be given to God in the sense of participating in God's mission, listening to God's law, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with the giver of all good things. A way of life that can only involve opposing cruelty, injustice, and arrogance in their various forms. Jesus isn't dividing the world into financial versus spiritual or civic versus religious. He's saying that it's all spiritual. My favorite poet um, in a poem called How to Be a Poet, to remind myself, Wendell Berry. Some of you may be familiar with his writings, but this is not one of his more well-known poems, but it's my favorite. And in it, he says, there are no unholy places, only sacred places and desecrated places. And you may have actually even already heard me say that. It's, it's kind of a tenet I live my life by. Everywhere we go and everything we do has the ability to be worship. The way we spend our time, the way we invest in our relationships, the way we offer love and mercy in hard spaces and at hard times, the way we reach out to build connections as the church in spaces where we wouldn't naturally do that. These are all ways that we give everything to God. So our invitation this week is to adjust our vision. We're called to see God in the world in which we live. We're called to identify the things that are God's, which is everything, but especially in the people and the places that we'd be most surprised to see God. This requires faith. It requires faith that God is indeed at work around us, that God is indeed powerful and loving. So when I look to Jesus to think about how to practice my faith in the real world, I don't see a path to glory that sidesteps humility, surrender, and sacrificial love. I don't see permission to secure my own prosperity at the expense of another's. No evidence that truth-telling is optional. I don't see a kingdom that favors the contemptuous over the brokenhearted, or a church that thrives through the long arc of history when it aligns itself too closely with political power. Figuring out our taxes is the easy part. What's harder is living out our convictions with a Christ-like humility, with a compassion that embraces the ideological other as a sibling. If we really belong to God, if we are really fashioned in God's image, then we practice our faith in ways that reflects who God is. Verse 22 tells us that they marveled at his answer, and then they left. It seems maybe they were impressed, baffled, confused, but they didn't change their way. At least not that we can see in this text. I often will say, what happens next after I read a passage? To put it into context, that's what I'll ask myself whether I'm studying for a sermon or doing my own readings. And in chapter 23, it's the woes of the Pharisees. That's how we can know they probably didn't change their ways. Jesus does say, yes, they sit on the seat of Moses, but he says, do not follow their example. And he lists all these ways in which they are bringing woe upon themselves. But not all Pharisees continued on that path. The most well-known is Nicodemus. We don't know what happened to him, but we know he honestly sought relationship with Christ. Joseph of Arimathea provided a gravesite for Jesus. There were some Pharisees who warned Jesus about a plot to kill him. In Luke 7, a few even invited Jesus into their home for a meal. 
It's a good reminder that it's never too late and none are too far gone when it comes to following Jesus. Personally, in my life, as I read this text, I thought about the invitation to... We recognize that everything is spiritual. Everything is part of our worship of God. But that's not the same as moralizing everything. I used to have this difficult idea that participating in the empire equals bad. And sometimes I miss the black and white nature of the way that I used to think, and I fall into nostalgia about how I was always pursuing homemade, locally sourced, ethically created, all these ways in which um, I could utilize my resources in the most responsible way possible. And that's a good thing. Sometimes I forget how exhausted and overwhelmed all that work made me. I had this constant crushing guilt as if it was my fault that all these systems were broken if I didn't make the right decision every time. For people like me, maybe Jesus is setting us free here. Not giving us a cop-out to live as if our choices don't have an effect in the world, but to remember that there are larger and more powerful systems at play than my little choices can make a difference in. We can, we can help. We can be part of those systems in a responsible way. We have a responsibility there. And the ones that live within those systems are created in the image of God and are held by God. But there's a lot more going on than whether or not I can afford to buy organic oranges that week or whatever. So I hope that you find freedom in Christ's words um, as I did. So by all means, give the emperor what belongs to him. But remember that our first loyalty is a kingdom that will remain long after earthly empires rise and fall. Caesar's realm, our realm we live in now, is limited and temporal. God's reign is eternal and all-encompassing. Give to God what is God's. Give God everything. The good news of the gospel is that there is this wider, deeper, more beautiful economy, bigger than any particular party or policy or nation, and that Jesus and the Hebrew prophets before him are calling us to live it out even today. Thanks be to God for this grace-filled truth. God, as we have just heard your word read and as I have attempted to teach it and to expound upon it, God, it is your spirit that makes your word grow within our hearts. So we ask that our hearts and souls and minds would be fertile soil for your truth, that we may follow you in obedience as we leave this space today. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparagold.org. May God bless you this week.